Well, we are continuing this morning in our series on the family, and what we've done the first three weeks of the series is think about the biblical storyline of the family. From Genesis to Revelation, what does God have to say about the family? And what we've said is that family is really central in a lot of ways to God's storyline. It is the He started creation with that, the family coming together and its unity and diversity to glorify God through its work in the world, in the creation. And then even as, uh, as mankind falls, we see that God works through the family to bring an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, which ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then with Jesus Christ coming onto the scene in the New Testament, we see a shift. We do see a shift where the ultimate loyalty on this earth is not to natural family anymore, but to the family of disciples, to the church. And even over above where God's message, the gospel will divide families, the family of disciples is to have a relationship with one another, to work together for God's glory, and the multiplication of image bearers through Christ, through the gospel, now in God's world, in God's plan. But now what we want to do, if the last uh, three weeks or so we've been looking at the 30,000-foot level of what God has to say about the family, now what we want to do in the coming weeks is narrow the focus a little bit more. So we want to drop our elevation, and we want to look at this week uh, family roles. So God has designed the family. He's given the family from creation. There's consistency from creation on through the New Testament era of how God wants the family to operate. So what are those roles? How are they supposed to operate? And then next week, we will focus in on the relationship for parents and parents and children and parenting principles and what God wants in the family in that regard. And then the week after that, Andre will come and give, share with us, uh, well, what does family discipleship look like? What has that worked out? All these principles that we're talking about and what the scriptures relate, what does that look like as it works its way out into family discipleship in daily life? Because as we looked and saw through the storyline of scripture, the family is still a primary vehicle, a, a very large vehicle in God's plan and program for discipleship, for uh, creating new learners and followers of Jesus Christ. And so we will talk about that in coming weeks. And so as this week, as we talk about family roles, God has designed the family. We've seen that it's consistent throughout the scriptures, that the family is designed in the same way. Uh, and as we're in the New Testament era, if we want to talk about family roles, there's one primary text to go to, and that is Ephesians 5, through 6, 4. Because, because what Paul is doing in this book, in Ephesians, he's talking to the church in Ephesus about their calling. That's really chapters 1 through 3. If you were to give a broad stroke of what he's doing, he's talking about their calling in Christ. What does it look like to be in Christ? What does that mean together as the church and as a people? And then starting in chapter 4, he says, all right, if that's the calling, walk worthy of the calling. Chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then he walks through, what does that look like in different avenues and aspects of life? And then even as we get into chapter 5, right before our text that we look at, he says this in chapter 5, 15, still talking about that aspect. How do you walk in the way that reflects and walks worthy of the gospel, 5.15 says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled by means of the Spirit. And notice what he's doing here. He's actually addressing the whole church. He's not just addressing individuals, although there are individual implications for this, but he's addressing the whole church. He's saying, you as a body, be filled by means of the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then one final thing, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that last verse 21 actually transitions us into this next section where we're going to talk about family roles. And the idea of submitting to one another, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about uh, this idea that there is ordered relationships in your lives. All of you, all of us live in ordered relationships in our lives, uh, one's ordered relationships that God himself has designed and that we come under and submit to. And in, in coming in line with God's design in headship and submission in all the relationships in your life, that's part of what it looks like to be filled as a community by the Spirit. Part of being filled by means of the Spirit and seeing that is actually coming into line with God's ordered relationships in life. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 21. He's talking broadly And then what he does is he transitions us into our section where he starts to bring it very practical into the preeminent ordered structure in human life, the family, the family. So that's the basic context of our passage before we walk into it. Now, a couple things before we jump into this text. What I want to say is Paul is addressing an ideal target in this passage. He's setting the standard. God has a standard. He's always had a standard for the family, and he's talking about that standard, and he's talking about that ideal target for the family. But here's the thing you got to keep in mind as he walks through this, as we walk through this passage. He is not addressing situations where there are deviations from this target. In other words, God, uh, Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is setting Here's God's plan for the family. Here's what it's supposed to look like. And Paul is not denying that there are deviations from that in the realities of living in a fallen world. He just doesn't address them here. This is the target that we're shooting for in the family. You just got to keep that in mind. He's not addressing the deviations. He's not addressing, well, what happens if this happens? He's not addressing that. He's just giving us the target. Here's what it's supposed to look like. And then the other thing I would, um, and you've noticed it as Jim read it, notice how this text progresses. He addresses different groups in their role and only their role. So he talks to wives first, then he talks to husbands, then he talks to children, then he talks to parents. And what you have to recognize as he's walking through that is that he's addressing each individual in their role. It doesn't imply that as he's addressing each individual in their role, this is what you're supposed to do. If this is what you're supposed to do, it does not necessarily imply that everyone else in the family is functioning as they ought to in their role. He's addressing individuals in their own role. It does not imply that everyone else needs to be functioning in their role for you to seek to live out yours. Focus on yours. Focus on you is the idea. And you'll see that as we walk through the text. And so here's the main idea of this text and where we're going this morning, and it's fairly simple to state. It's this. The gospel must shape your role in your family. The gospel must shape your role in your family. And that's 
if I was to have you come away with anything, it's not just the roles. And we'll talk about the roles. But Paul is not just talking about the roles. He's saying the roles are driven by the gospel. They're driven by the gospel itself. Paul's not just interested in maintaining order. He's interested in how does the gospel look and work its way out in family life in roles, which is where we're going. So we start first in verses 22 through 33 in wives and husbands. Wives and husbands. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So who is he talking to? He's talking to wives. Not talking to husbands right now, is he? He's talking to wives. Okay, wives, listen up. This is what you're supposed to do in the family. And he uses the word submit. And the reason he uses the word submit on one level is because he just used that word in verse 21, didn't he? Verse 21 says, all right, part as a community, as a local church, part of what it looks like to be filled by means of the Spirit is in the ordered relationships in life. You need to respect that order and you need to come in, uh, under that order, which is exactly what the word submit means. Submission, if you were to kind of break it down, and you can't always do this with every kind of biblical word, otherwise you get ridiculous results, like in the case of the word butterfly. Break that down, you're going to run into trouble and try to um, get some issues. But in this case, it, it's helpful to do that. Um, and the word submission, it has to do with the idea of order uh, first. Uh, the, the kind of the key part of that word is order, and then the other part of the word is under. So you could think about it as order undering, uh, uh, or, uh, uh, ordering under something. And we see this word, that's literally what it means. Every time it's used, it's used in some sort of structured, ordered relationship between people. But what you have to understand is that this word doesn't imply anything about the relative worth or inherent value of the people in the relationship. How do I know that? Because it's used of Jesus when he submits to his parents in Luke. And remember that story, right? They go to the temple and they find Jesus and he's um, talking with the rabbis and scribes and they're all amazed. And the parents are like, hey, uh, Jesus, you need to come home with us. And what does it say? It says he submits to them. So uh, does, it mean, does that mean then that Jesus is inferior in worth to his parents? Boy, I sure hope not, because there's a lot of theological problems with that reality, right? So this word has to do with recognizing an order, recognizing a structure, and coming under uh, that structure in the way that God would have. Here's another example with Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, so the very same author, Paul, of Ephesians, 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how to the end of time, Christ has, is king over all things, and what does he do? He submits himself and all things under the Father. Well, I hope we're not going to say that Jesus is inferior to the Father, and that's why he's submitting to the Father, because then you're a heretic, and that's bad. So we don't do that, right? But what I'm trying to get across is that this word has nothing inherently to do with about relative worth or inherent value. We know that's not true. In fact, we could even go back to Genesis. How did God create man and woman as image bearers of God? Each one is equal image bearers of God. They are equal worth, dignity, and value. But that's not what Paul is addressing here. What he's addressing to is a, uh, a order that God has put in the creation. We said from Genesis 1 on, God has put in the order of creation, in the order of the family itself, the husband is the head and lead of the family. The wife is to come alongside as a complementary helpmate. We saw that in Genesis 1 and 2. Why? Because why does the family exist? They come alongside one another 
for the glory of God. The family is all about God's glory and honor, and they work together in their roles to do that. This word for submission here in the active, it's the idea of causing submission. So someone causing the submission of someone else, but that's not what's used here. What's used here in verse 22 is the passive form, meaning voluntary submission. In other words, this is not coerced submission. This is not, this is not um, get in line. You're not making someone subject. It's being subject voluntarily. Or another way to say that, who's he addressing? He's addressing the wives now, and he's giving this command. He's not addressing the husbands in this section. He's not telling them, subject your wives. He's telling wives, voluntarily be subject to your husband. There's a difference. There's a difference, and we'll see that as we go along. Notice what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands. What does that mean, submit? I mean, okay, what, what are we talking about here? Well, let's, let's go a little bit farther. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submit how? Like you do to the Lord, Christ. Why? Well, he gives a reason in verse 23. Because the husband is the head of the wife, even as, or just as, yeah, as Christ is also the head of the church. Now, what's going on here? The husband is head of the wife. What does that mean? Head means, uh, it means a leadership role. It means an authority role. That's what head means. But notice how Paul is arguing here. He's not just saying, all right, submit because the husband is the head. Now, that's true from Genesis, but notice how he's motivating it. How is he motivating it? He is motivating it by saying, as Christ is head of the church. And really what he's doing in that, as he, he talks about that, he's motivating verse 22 and 23, the, uh, the, 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 the aspect of submission, he is motivating it by the picture of the gospel and what Christ has done with the church. And we're going to see he does this not only with the wife, but he does it with the husband. The motivation in this whole section is the reason you submit is not because uh, the husband is likable, not because he's perfect. He's certainly not. We know that. But why are you doing this? Because of an analogous authority structure between Christ and the church and between a husband and a wife. The reason, the reason is the picture, the analogy. Wives, you submit to your husband. Why? Because of the picture of the church submitting to Christ. Now, Paul then says something else, and the grammar here and how the sentences are constructed are a little bit tricky, but he goes on, and you're like, well, wait a minute, that, that's, that, is that a fair analogy? I mean, a husband and a wife, a sinful husband and a sinful wife, and Christ and the church, is that a fair analogy? And Paul kind of gives a nod to that with the next thing he says. Literally what he says next is this, he, referring to Christ, he is savior of the body, but as the church is submitting to Christ, so also wives to husbands in everything. What's he doing there? And I think what he's doing is this. Why does he say he, meaning Christ, is savior of the body? Well, what, how did Christ become the head of the church? How did Christ become the head of the church? And this is where we go back to the gospel. And actually, you can see this 
earlier in Ephesians. Turn back over to Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, and I'll just start in verse 19, kind of picking up mid-sentence, but notice what happens here. Ephesians 1, 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. How did Christ become head of the church? By the gospel, by his death and resurrection, by redeeming a people for himself, he became the head. And Paul, in Ephesians 5, he's giving a nod to that, and he's saying, all right, we understand that there's a difference here. There's a difference between Christ and the church and a wife and her husband. There's an authority structure there, and you need to respect that, But how did Christ become head of the church? He's the savior of the body. And what Paul is really, he says, he's the savior of the body, but. And what's he doing there? He's giving a nod and saying, all right, we understand, wives, that your husband is not the savior of you. (laughs) He didn't do that. That's a difference. Christ saved his church. That's how he became head. That's not how your husband became head of you. There's a difference. There's a difference. But even despite that difference, what does Paul say? And it literally is, but, verse 24, but even despite that difference, even though we acknowledge that Christ became head of the church in a different way than the husband became head of the wife, despite that difference, and despite the difference between a sinful husband and Christ, despite that difference, but as the church is submitting to Christ, In this manner also, wives to the husbands in everything. In other words, what is Paul motivating all of this by? He's not motivating this by, well, submit to your husband if he's like Christ. Well, he's not like Christ. He's never going to be. What's the motivation? The motivation is this. Submit to your husband because it reflects, no matter what, it it reflects that authority structure between Christ and the church in your relationship with your husband. That's how he's motivating this. Okay, what does submission mean? I mean, submission gets a bad rap in our culture, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, but what does that mean? It means recognizing an authority, voluntarily coming under it. We said this is voluntary. This is not coerced here. And respecting and seeking to take direction from it. That's what the church does. The church comes under Christ's authority, voluntarily comes under it, respects it, and seeks to take direction from that authority. And it's the same way with wives. Submission means recognizing a husband's authority given by God, it's a delegated authority by God, voluntarily coming under that authority, and respecting and seeking to take direction from it from it. And why does that happen? Why? What's the reason? Because it's an opportunity to reflect the gospel. It's an opportunity to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the reason given. Now, that's the basic role for wives and given here. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands. But why? Because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done with the church, and because in your role as submission in the family, you get to picture and reflect some of what the church does for Christ. Yes, he saved the church. It's different, but there's still an authority structure there, and you have the opportunity, even in a sinful and fallen world, even with a hard marriage, you can reflect that relationship. Now we switch over to the husband's. Husbands. Now, even before we go beyond that word, husbands, so he just switched, didn't he? Who was he talking to through verse 20, uh, in 22 through 24? He was talking to wives, meaning he wasn't talking to husbands directly. And you might think, and actually there are other kind of extra biblical docu- documents in the ancient world, you might think, based on the fact that wives are to submit to their husbands, that he would tell the husbands, all right, husbands, uh, co- make sure your wives are submissive, the other end of that. That's not what he says. He doesn't tell husbands, subjugate your wives or make them submissive. He doesn't say that. What are husbands supposed to do? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Just as, what? What's the standard? And he's going to bring back the same picture. Just as Christ also loved the church. The command to husbands is not, make sure your wives are submissive. Paul doesn't say that. The scriptures do not say that. It says, in your role, husband, what's your role? Love your wives. That is what God would call you to do. And here's the standard for your love, just as also Christ loved the church. What does that look like? What does it look like for Christ to love the church? And, well, he goes on, and gave himself over in her behalf. In other words, substitutionary sacrifice. Paul goes on to lay out, okay, what did Christ's love look at? Well, first thing it looks like is sacrifice. Love is sacrificial. Laying down in behalf of another, and in this case, husbands in behalf of a wife, sacrificially loving them, substituting for them, protecting them. To do what? What did Christ do? What was the purpose behind his sacrifice? Verse 26, in order that he might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of the water in word. Why did Christ sacrifice? Did he just sacrifice for its own sake? No. To do what? To sanctify. Now, what does the word sanctify mean? In our equipping hour uh, several weeks and months ago now at this point, we talked about the idea of holiness. And holiness is this very spatial idea. If you think about the temple in the Old Testament, you've got this kind of holy area where you can draw near to God's presence. And then outside of that holy area is the common area uh, where common life is lived. The idea of sanctification, if you want to draw near to God's presence, first you've got to be clean, and cleansing happened with water often, that was often involved. You got to be clean to even come into the holy area. And then, if you want to be a priest and you want to draw near to God as much as you can, you want to draw near to God's presence as much as you can, you have to be sanctified, meaning brought out of the realm of the common into the realm of the holy. And that is exactly what Jesus did for the church. That's exactly what Jesus did for the church. She was an unclean bride. Filthy because of sin, and she's un, not very lovely. If you look at, um, at even the depictions throughout Scripture of God's people and their sinfulness, uh, they're not lovely. 
but Christ sacrificed for the church in order to cleanse her, in order for her good, to draw her near to God, that's what he did. So it wasn't just sacrifice and sacrificial love, it was sacrifice for a purpose, it was sacrifice for the good of the church, even when she's unlovely, to be able, for her good, to draw near to God. And Paul is saying that's the kind of love you ought to have. Sacrificial love for the wife's good. Yes, uh, one, the first and foremost good for a wife is that she might be able to draw near to God. Because God is her first and foremost good. But even in general, to sacrifice, to have your life, husband, as a platform and service to love and do what's best for your wife, for the wife to flourish. You see, the idea of uh, authority in the Bible, biblical authority, we, we don't like authority. Americans don't like authority. We just don't. Um, we like to rebel against authority. I mean, our nation was founded on that. So uh, we don't like authority. So we think of authority in a negative way. But biblical authority is always, and I, the idea is not you serve me, you serve me the authority, I'm the top-down authority, it's always a servant authority. It's always a platform. Authority is a platform for the good of others. And that's exactly what Christ did for the church. He laid down his life. He sacrificed his life for his people in order for their best, even when they're unlovely, to draw near to God. And notice how it progresses. Even that, even the sanctification of the church, even drawing the church and cleansing her out of the realm of the common into the realm of the holy so she could enjoy God forever, even that's not the end. Notice how verse 27 says, in order that. The sanctification is for what purpose? In order that he might present to himself glorious the church, not having spot or wrinkle or any th such thing, but in order that she might be holy and without blemish. Why does Christ want to sanctify the church and cleanse her? To bring her to himself. In other words, he desires intimacy and closeness with his church. Yes, she was filthy, she was unlovely in a lot of ways, but he still sacrifices and serves her and loves her and does what is necessary, makes his life a platform for the church, to, for her good, and in order that he might enjoy the church. And then this is how he's defining love for husbands. So a husband, if a husband is called to love as Christ loved the church, then the husband is called to, live, to, to love sacrificially, for the good of his wife, pointing her to God, even when she is not lovable, desiring intimacy and closeness with her. That is what husbands are called to do. Why? Because that points to the biblical picture of Christ in the church. The picture is the same in each way. The fulfilling of roles in a marriage is not about whether the other person is worthy of that or whether they are perfect. They're not going to be. It's the structure, and in the structure, you are seeking as best as you can and fulfilling your roles to reflect that structure so that it points back to Christ and Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to Christ. This is motivated by the gospel. It's not just submit because, it's not just love because, it's because of what Christ has done for the church. 
And then Paul goes on. You, you notice, uh, because, you're the, uh, because the husbands are the authority, they have the greater responsibility to do it right. Paul spends a great deal of time making sure, husbands, you, as the head of your family, you have a great deal of responsibility before God to do it right for the sake of not just your wife, but for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. And Paul kind of shifts gears in 28. Again, the grammar is a little bit difficult, but I think this is, uh, this is how it should be rendered. In this way, the husbands also ought, like that's moral obligation. Here you're morally obligated in another way also to love their wives, at, at their own wives, as their own bodies. So Paul didn't mention anything in the previous little section we were talking about with husbands loving their wives. He didn't mention anything about loving the wife as his own body, but now he says, all right, let's talk about another way and another picture that husbands are to love their wives. They're supposed to love their wives as their own bodies. He's shifting gears. He's saying, let's look at another aspect of this. Husbands are not only to love their wives as Christ loved the church, they're to love their wives as their own bodies. In other words, what, uh, and he says this, the one loving his wife loves himself. What is he trying to say? He's not telling you to love yourself. As a, that, that is never a biblical command. You love yourself enough as it is. What is he saying? He's saying the unity and the, the closeness between you and your wife because of marriage, God's designed marriage this way from the beginning, which Paul will talk about here in a second, the union that happens between a husband and wife in marriage means you're one flesh. And it's just as if your body was right over there, even though she's a separate person, she's separate from you. It's like your body's right over there. Your person is right over there. That's how close the union is. And so husbands, you ought to love your wives as your own body. And then he goes on to explain this and motivate this. Verse 29, for no one at any time ever hated his own flesh. Reasonable, rational people uh, have no problem taking care of their own flesh. What do they do to it? They nourish it. And they warm it. Uh, you might, your translation might read uh, um, cherish, but the idea is literally warm. Like, you take care of your flesh, meaning uh, I'm going to eat um, some food to nourish my body, and I'm also going to put on a coat to keep myself warm because I want to keep my flesh, my body, I want to nourish it. I want to protect it. I don't hate my body. I want it, I want it to, to, to be healthy. And he's saying, what is he doing with this? He's saying, that's how you ought to love your wife. Just like you nourish your own body, just like you warm your own body, you ought to love your wife in that way. You ought to, you ought to nourish her, warm her. And notice how he motivates it again, just as also Christ... You can read, nourishes and warms the church. Why does he do that? Verse 30, because we, Paul speaking for the church here, we are members of his body. Christ, if you talk about a marriage and you talk, well, let's just talk about Christ first. Christ views his church as an intimate union with himself. That's why he died for her. It, he views it as his own body. He views it as members of his own body. Christ loves his church. That's why it's utterly ridiculous for people to despise the church. It's an offense to God and it's offense to Christ because Christ loves his 
church. It's part of him. It's who he is. It's part of who he is. He's, he's sacrificed for her. And what does he do? He nourishes and warms the church. He does what's necessary to take care of his church because he died for her. He's in union with her. And he's saying, well, it's the same thing. Whether you're talking about Christ in the church, whether you're talking about a human marriage, the union is so close and bound together, it's one flesh, one body relationship. And since you take care of your own body just fine, you're going to take care of your wife because that's the union you have with her through marriage. That's the union, and this is the amazing part of what Paul is saying, that's the union that the church has with Christ through the gospel. Yes, that's true for each individual Christian, but Christianity is not an individual faith. It is a corporate faith. It is that we are part of the church, and Christ loves the church. Yes, he loves you as an individual, but he loves his church. He loves his people, and he cares for his people. He nourishes and cherishes them. And then notice how Paul goes back to creation to motivate this more. Verse 31, he quotes Genesis. He quotes Genesis 2 in the first marriage, Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast. The idea is like glue, be adhered to. I mean, it's a strong word. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, there's a little bit of context here. We've seen in Matthew, as our study through Matthew, and we'll return to that in a few weeks, but uh, we've seen in Matthew that the New Testament authors always quote the Old Testament contextually. Same thing here. Paul quotes this contextually. So let's remember Genesis 2. You can flip back there if you want to, just to see whether I'm on track here. But what happened? So Adam um, is there, and he's naming all the animals. God has already given the task of ruling over creation as a stewardship ruler, working and keeping it. He's already given all these commands and things to Adam. He's, he's holding Adam responsible. And as he says, it's not good that he should be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. And then all the animals, and he names all the animals, but he, there's no helper corresponding. So what does God do? He puts him to sleep, and he takes out a rib and makes her into, uh, the rib into a woman. You can't get any more one flesh than that. The first marriage, the one fleshness was all about, yeah, we took out a rib of Adam that's like the same body and made her into a woman. And why? That becomes the pattern, that becomes the motivation for the one fleshness of every human marriage. That's why the quote starts with, therefore. Because of that one fleshness that happened with Adam and Eve, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, in reflection of the, the first marriage with Adam and Eve. But here's the amazing thing in what Paul is doing. He quotes this passage and says, what did he last say in verse 30? We, the church, are members of his body. Therefore... You see, Paul's not only looking back to Genesis, he's saying, hey, that has implications uh, here and now. That therefore has force in what I just said. We are members of Christ's body. The church is um, Christ's body. In other words, they're one flesh. They're united, just like Adam and Eve were one flesh. Therefore, because Christ and the church are one flesh, 
A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that, yes, every human marriage is patterned after the one flesh relationship that Adam and Eve had, but behind that, and even more important than that, is the plan for the marriage between Christ and his church from all eternity. Because God has always had that planned. Or another way you could say it, the reason Adam and Eve had a one flesh relationship from the beginning was ultimately to start kick off this pattern that was ultimately supposed to refer back to Christ and his church. And he's saying that's why marriage exists. Marriage exists because of the gospel. That Christ has always, and you can see this in Ephesians 1. Turn back to Ephesians 1 again. Start in 1 2. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before that we should be holy and blameless before him, just like the bride is to be holy and blameless. Christ's church is to be holy and blameless. God has predestined that and planned that before Adam and Eve ever existed, and that pattern drives human marriage. The gospel drives human marriage. That's why marriage is so important to God throughout the whole of the Scriptures. What does Paul say? This mystery, the idea of mystery, we saw this in, 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 in um, Matthew. The, idea, the biblical idea of a mystery is something that was hidden it's always been in God's plan, but it was hidden and now is revealed. And what Paul is saying is, hey, we didn't realize until Christ stepped onto the scene that everything about marriage, human marriage, was pointing back to Christ in the church, but now we know it. That's what he means by the mystery. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So he's kind of blown away that human marriage, all human marriage, exists ultimately to point to Christ and the church. And then he kind of comes down and he says, however, let's come back to the point, what we're talking about. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. These roles exist and are there to portray the gospel. And that's the motivation. So yes, the role of the, uh, the wife is to submit, to, uh, to take the leadership the, 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 the intention, the desire to, take, uh, to, to allow the husband to lead and have authority in the family, to come under that, to voluntarily submit to that. And the husband is to love his wife like this. And uh, the standard is ridiculously high. Why? And why do we strive towards him? Not just because it's a good idea, not just because God said it, therefore we do it, but because it pictures the gospel. It pictures what Christ has done with himself and the church. That is why these rules exist and why God would have us fulfill them. Now, we're kind of getting the summary picture here in Ephesians 5.22 through, uh, through 33. It's, it's not like this is the only passage that talks about rules. I mean, we could talk about the idea of the helpmate from G, um, Genesis 2.18. Uh, the pattern has been consistent. We've said that um, throughout. This has always been the pattern. These are always the rules. 
but it's the idea of a complementary helpmate. You could talk about Titus 2, 3 through 5 for the wife, that she's to love her husband, to work in the home, and uh, to, to, uh, to, again, the language of submission under the husband. And then 1 Peter says, you don't just do this if your husband's a believer, you do this even if he's not a believer, because in so doing, you're pointing back to the gospel so that even potentially the husband can be won without a word by the conduct of wives. For the husband, the husband, uh, you can look at Colossians 3.19, he's not to be embittered against his wife, not to be harsh with his wife. First uh, Peter 3.7 talks about how um, the husband is supposed to honor the wife. And if we're talking about the measure of the husband's love being Christ's love for the church, well, it's a servant love because we could look at John 13, 1 through 14, where Jesus is said to love his people, love his disciples. And what does he do to love his disciples? He puts on a robe and he serves them. He washes their feet. That's what headship looks like. Headship looks like serving, being a platform to serve and to serve your wife. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. You see, when it's done right, when we strive, and again, remember what Paul is doing. He's, he's giving us, here's the target. Here's the ideal target for the family. And there's no denying that we fall short of that. That's why, I mean, the culture says that submission is demeaning and stifling. That's what the culture says, right? If you're thinking about the wife's side, they have no problem with the husband loving their wife. That's, there's no problem there, Right? But when you talk about the idea of submission, and that's become a dirty word in our culture, but the culture says that submission is demeaning and stifling. And the Bible doesn't view it that way, if it's done right. Gives a biblical picture of what it's supposed to look like. Turn back to Proverbs 31. You guys all know this, the excellent wife. Well, if she's the excellent wife, and then she's the model of what a wife should be, then this is a submissive wife, isn't it? Let's read about what submission looks like, and you tell me, does this look stifling? Does this look demeaning? Proverbs 31.10, An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands and pl she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household for she, all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates and when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. That's biblical submission. And it is not stifling, but beautiful if it is done right. And there you see a snapshot of a husband loving his wife, praising his wife, and a wife submitting to her husband, and it's beautiful. It's 
fits the picture, not only of what God has designed from creation, but now that Christ has come, it amplifies the gospel and points to the gospel. Now, remember what Ephesians 5 does not say. It's the, it's the ideal target. It doesn't address exceptions, and there are exceptions. It does not say, and I will reemphasize this again, that husbands are to subjugate their wives. That is not their command. Husbands are not commanded to cause their wives to submit or cause their wives to be subject. That is not their command. Their command is to love them sacrificially, like Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5 does not limit, uh, address the limits of submission or what to do in matters of abuse. A spouse is never called to submit to abuse. That is beyond the bounds of submission. What is abuse? Author Darby Strickland in her book, Is It Abuse?, uh, says this. It's a helpful definition. Here's what abuse is. And this is what we don't mean when we mean submission. We do not mean this. Absolutely not. This is intolerable. Abuse occurs in a marriage when one spouse pursues their own self-interest by seeking to control and dominate the other person through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behaviors. It's not servant leadership. It's top-down coercion and control. That's abuse. Abuse occurs in a marriage when one spouse pursues their own self-interests by seeking to control and dominate the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behaviors, which can occur physically, emotionally, sexually, uh, financially, in all sorts of ways abuse can control. The heart of abuse is, I'm in control, you will serve me, and I will punish you if you do not. And the Bible calls that oppression. And God hates oppressors. Submission never means to submit to abuse. We as the church would support any woman who is in an abusive relationship to come and divulge that. That's scary, that's hard, and yet we stand ready to come alongside someone who is abused and to say, that's not submission. You're, that's oppression, and God hates it, and we want to help you get out of it and to hold the oppressor accountable, because God will. God will hold the oppressor accountable, as should the church. That's husbands and wives. Wife is to submit to her husband. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And then we get into children and parents. Chapter 6, he moves on. The foundation of the family, the foundation of the family is the marriage. So we deal with that first. And then Paul goes on to say, all right, we've dealt with husbands and wives. That's the core of the family. What about children and parents? And that's what we get in 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So now he's not talking to moms and dads. He's talking to children, believing children. And he's saying, children, obey your parents. And you do this, you obey in the Lord. Meaning he's talking to believing children. And he's saying, all right, children, what do you do if you're in a household? Maybe your parents aren't even believers necessarily. How do you act? What's your role? To obey your parents. Motivated because you're a Christian. It's, it's, it's the same thing. You're motivated by the gospel to obey your parents. For this is right. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. Now he's quoting, the, he's quoting the fifth commandment from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother, 
And why is he saying honor? Honor goes beyond obedience. We think of obedience, you could just think of behavior modification, right? I can conform my behavior, and you can be obedient, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're honoring the person. And what Paul is saying is that we want not just conforming behavior, we want this done from a heart that recognizes the leadership of the mom and the dad in the home to honor them, to respect them and the authority that God has given them in the home. And then he motivates it this way. This is the first commandment with a promise. There's a promise attached to it that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, for Israel, that was, okay, you're, you're living in the land, you're doing well, you're living long. But here, Paul says, yeah, there's a promise still even in this time for those who honor, not just obey, but honor. Because you honor your parents, you obey them. And there's still a promise with that. The role of the children is to obey and to honor in the family. What about the flip side? So now he flips to the authority in the relationship, just like he did with wives and husbands. Verse 4, and we'll spend more time on this verse next week when we talk about parenting principles. But verse 4, fathers, now wait a minute, he was just talking about moms and dads, now he switches and he addresses fathers specifically. Well, we've said, even throughout all of the scriptures as we walk through them, that you can see this in Proverbs very clearly, that even in the passage we just read in Proverbs 31, the mom and the dad both have a role in training their children, but the ultimate responsibility for children and their upbringing is the fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There's many ways that that can happen. Don't do it. Don't provoke your children to anger. But what? What should you do? But bring them up. And this is the same word for nourish that was used earlier in the chapter. Remember, uh, each one nourishes and warms his flesh. This is the same word here. So it's the idea, nourish them, like a plant. Nourish these children in what? in the training and admonition of the Lord. Your version might read uh, discipline and instruction. The word here for that's often translated discipline, it, it, it probably has a broader sense here of the idea of training. Training. Now, discipline is part of training, but it's, training is way broader than that. It's training, and then the second word is the idea of admonition, warning. Warning. Training and admonition of the Lord. What does that mean? Training and admonition of the Lord. Well, you're doing this, parents, in a Christian way. You're indoctrinating your children as best you can. Right? You're trying to say, we are Christians as parents, as a, uh, as a father, we're trying to raise you to point you to Christ and to know who God is and to live in that way. Ultimately, you can't cause the child's conversion, but you can do all that you can to nourish the children in the training in training and admonition, warning in relation to the Lord. And we'll talk more about that next week as we focus kind of on sixth form. What does that all mean? What does that all entail? But here we get the basic instructions. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey and honor your parents. Fathers, parents in general, but specifically fathers, nurture your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Those are the family roles in Snapshot. Now, that works its way out. 
I mean, we could say this, as we think about application coming away from this, I mean, the commands are pretty direct. The general application is clear. The marching orders, the target, is clear, and yet we understand that these commands work themselves out in a thousand details in everyday life. So maybe the way forward is to think about it like this. Examine the mundane details of your family life, what day-to-day looks like in your family life, and see, do they match these marching orders from Christ? Do they match these principles? And, I mean, if you're honest, you start reflecting on this, you can, we can all think about ways we fell short this last week in not doing this. So what do you do? What's this all motivated by? The gospel. You repent and ask forgiveness. And maybe you need to go to a family member and say, you know what, I was not loving you in that way. I was not serving you in that way. Or if you're a child, I was not obeying you. I was not, you know, in any one of those roles. So yes, you need to go to the family member and repent. But first and foremost, you need to go to the Lord and repent because when we fail in our roles, we dishonor him and the gospel, which should inform our roles. You see in the text, right, that's the one thing I want you to come away with. These roles are motivated by the gospel, by what Christ has done for us. So when we fail in those roles, it's like, well, shucks, I I failed again. No, it's that we're dishonoring Christ and that we're dishonoring the gospel. And so first and foremost, we repent to the Lord and say, Lord, I have not been walking in the role that you would have for me, and I've been dishonoring you And you start there, and then you go to your family member and confess and repent and ask their forgiveness. But it's rooted in the gospel. Or maybe you reflect on this and it's like, what is this? I've never heard this before, or I'm nowhere close to following this role. I don't even want to do this. I have no desire. Well, maybe that shows you that you need to you need to be come back to the gospel. Maybe you've never embraced the gospel before, right? The idea that Christ loved and sacrificed himself for his church to make her his own. And that's the motivation behind these roles. And only once you are motivated by the gospel will you be able to live God's plan for marriage. And so the answer, in a sense, is the same for a believer or unbeliever. It's come to the gospel, see the gospel, marvel in the gospel, marvel in the reality of Christ rescuing an unlovely bride for himself. And if you're struck by that, if you're motivated by that, that's the motivation that will help you live your role, even when others aren't. That's the thing, is that Paul's not saying, all right, wives, submit to your husbands as long as they're doing their role. It doesn't say that. It says, submit or husband's love because of the gospel. So focus on your role in the family, motivated by the gospel, even when others aren't living up to theirs. And God can use it. It's not a promise, but God can use it to point to the gospel and to rescue even family members for themselves. The gospel must, it must shape your role in the family. You're not living by the gospel. You're not motivated by the gospel. Your family's not going to look this way. It's only through the strength, the grace of Christ that is through the gospel that you can be motivated to live in these roles. The gospel must shape your role in your family. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and we can all confess and repent that there are ways in which we are not living according to your design in your role, 
And Lord, that's not just about us. It's not just, oh, that's a bad idea, or oh, that's a mistake, or anything like that. Lord, it, we dishonor you, and we defame you, and we defame the gospel, and what you have done in loving us as the church. So we ask your forgiveness for that. We ask that you would grant us repentance, and that you would help us to even go to family members where we failed and confess and repent to them. And Lord, give us strength, give us motivation from the gospel, seeing the gospel, seeing what you've done for the church to operate in our families in the ways that you would have us. Lord, please build our families up. You love the family. And Lord, I pray that you would protect. Protect if there are any relationships in which there is abuse happening. Lord, protect and expose, we would ask, because you hate oppressors and you love those who are oppressed, oh Lord God. You came to rescue them. Lord, help us in our families to walk in your rules, motivated by the gospel, for your honor, for your glory. We thank you for rescuing us as a church and an unlovely bride that does not deserve it, but to make us yours and to present us to yourself in splendor, and we long for that day. Come soon, Lord Jesus, we would ask in Christ's name. Amen.